initially, mixed with a diversity which produces harmony. And that is really the story of the body of Christ and uh, what a blessing it is to be part of worship uh, this morning. I wanted to just uh, uh, thank Nick for covering last week for me. It was a, uh, a very pleasant break that I had to be able to return back to Parkview and see uh, my daughter's uh, hand in, in the building of it, an amazing worship service that consisted of scripture and song for the entire um, service. Uh, the youth group memorized the entire books of First and Second Peter, and they quoted them through, interspersed with different music related to the topics. Uh, just a powerful, powerful service, and um, we were hosting six Naval Academy students at the time. They all got to hear that. They heard the word of God in its purity, spoken uh, by, you know, people their age or younger, and it was just an amazing, amazing time. Uh, if you can make your way to the book of Isaiah, and uh, chapter 40 is where we're going to kind of launch from today. In addition to the time that we've been away, the our nation and our world has certainly undergone a certain degree of turmoil, and it is yet to yet to be seen how all of it plays out. Um, a lot has indeed in, uh, transpired, and as I was uh, in prayer and and thinking long before uh, the events of our day surfaced, um, what what can I, how can I best benefit? Southern Hills E Free as to an extended series. And my prayers and, and my thoughts were continually focused on if, if I could give you the greatest possible gift that I have, uh, what, what would it be in a, in a series? And my mind and my heart just continually came back to a series that I've entitled Behold Our God. And we're going to be singing a song on this uh, after the message today, which should tie all this together. But uh, Behold Our God is a series that I'd like to share with you. It's a study in the character and the attributes of God. Uh, really coming to grips with who is our God and what is our God and how ought we to view our God? How ought we to behold our God? And now more than ever is needed Christians, men and women, boys and girls, the people of God, to display a confidence, a rock-solid confidence in their God, now more than ever. And with that kind of as a, a platform to begin, I, I want you to look at Isaiah and, and ver, uh, chapter 40 and verse 9, where I'm just going to kind of read this to frame our, our thoughts this morning. You're, you'll be familiar with this text, the context at least, where Isaiah, back in verse 6, has said, All flesh is like grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Verse 8, The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And then it's in verse 9 that I want to draw your attention. Right after those words, Isaiah writes to the people of God, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear, and say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. This is the message of the prophet Isaiah to the people of God, the residents of Zion, the city of God, the residents of Jerusalem, to get up 
the location is to a high mountain, a position of prominence where you can be seen and uh, to use the instrument, the voice, lift up your voice mightily in a manner in which you can be heard. And the assignment is clear. Say to the cities of Judah, this is your God. Some of your translations say, behold your God. Look, your God. And in a day like today, as really any day in church history, there is no greater priority than to look into the wondrous glory and display of our God. I want to commend you this morning for being here, and I will commend you continually for being part of the series to come, because there is no more important task for the believer to engage in than in a study of our God. No doubt we study many important things. We study uh, history. We study science. Without a doubt, we study medicine, and we are the beneficiaries of all of that. But nothing can be more important for you and for I than to study our God himself. And the importance of this cannot be overstated. Like a rudder of a ship, which will determine the ultimate destiny, the course and destiny of that ship, the study of God also determines the course of our lives and our ultimate destiny and our relationship to him. And understanding God is key. Understanding God is central to unlocking all of the truths of life. You want to be a good father? You want to be a good mother? You need to study God. You want to be a good employee? You want to be a good worker out in the workplace? You want to be a good evangelist? You must first understand God. There's no greater priority, ladies and gentlemen. There's also no greater relevance. We manifest our concept of God, whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, we are displaying our view of God daily. Uh, it was A.W. Tozer who wrote that what comes into your mind when you think about God defines you and is the most important thing about you. When I say the word God, what jumps into your mind defines who you are as an individual. And you tell me what a person believes about God, and I will tell you how that person lives his life in private, even though I've never seen him live his life. And the reverse is true. You tell me about how a person lives his or her life, and I will tell you that person's view of God, even though I've never had a theological discussion with that person. There is a, an intimate connection here. It shapes not only what we believe, but how we live and how we worship and how we serve and how we invest our time and how we occupy our minds. It is, it is rooted in our understanding of God, and scarcely is there an error in life or an error in doctrine, or an error in our decisions that is not able to be traced back to our view of God. And ladies and gentlemen, let's understand this right from the shoot, that a high view of God produces high worship, exalted worship of God, transcendent worship. A high view of God produces confidence in any area of our life, but a low view of God leads to low uh, living, does it not? A low view of God leads to preoccupation with trivialities and obsessions with the low aspects of the world. There's no greater priority, there's no greater relevance, and thirdly, just by way of introduction here, there's no greater oversight in the church as well. See, the church gets used to just doing church the way the church has always been done, and we rarely will reference God in this. You talk to the average uh, high school Christian, you talk to the average college graduate, 
you know, have you ever heard a series on the doctrine of God? Have you ever really come to grips with who God is? Sometimes you can even ask pastors, have you ever taught on who God is from a biblical perspective? And you, you will often get the answer to be no. Tozer again comments on this deficiency in the church. He says, uh, it is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of the majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. In other words, what he's saying is we don't even often know that we've lost our view of God. We just keep on trucking along, doing business as usual. And in a world today that is preoccupied by fear and anxiety and disquietness of spirit, we have lost our God. And what I mean by that is this. We have lost the sense of his majesty. And we have lost the sense of his preeminence. We have lost the sense of his transcendence. And we have lost the sense of his utter reliability to hold our lives within his hands. We need to be reminded of these things. We need to behold our God. And the only way to do that is to regroup, to recoup, and adopt a big God view of theology, a big God view of the world, that a big God is running the world, not a puny God. And I hope today by this introduction, though I'm taking time with it, that I'm provoking you and challenging you to think about the bigness of our God this morning. And to that end, we will be engaging over the next several weeks in an exegetical study of really what it's called is theology proper. We're not going to be studying philosophy. We're not going to be studying psychology. We're going to be studying theology from the Bible, verse by verse, as it speaks of our God. And so this morning, if you have your little outline in your hands there, we're going to be asking five questions to kind of launch this uh, series uh, in the proper direction five questions about the character and attributes of God, and, and this will help us lay the necessary platform for this, so uh, follow along in the notes, and you'll be, able to, you'll be able to write a few things down that are important to our study. I want to begin, first of all, in helping us to, to define just what we're talking about here, and ask the question, what is an attribute of God? What is an attribute of God? An attribute of God simply is this, is a quality that belongs to the being of God. It's an aspect of his revealed character. It's not what you think God is. It's what God says he is. It's, it's, it's what is true of God himself in his nature as he has revealed himself, his qualities, his excellencies, his perfections is what many refer to them as. And the reason is this, is if you're going to grow as a Christian, you have to have a deep knowledge of God. You have to have your feet on solid ground, firmly planted in your understanding of God. You have to know him. And I, I can illustrate this even with my relationship with my wife. When I first met my wife and when I first became married to my wife, I thought I knew her. And now 20, yeah. Now nearly 24 years later, what do I realize after walking hand in hand with her for all these years? What do I realize? I realize that I barely knew her 
and we committed to spend the rest of our lives together based on such a small knowledge of each other. But the point being here is that now we have the rest of our lives to get to know each other, and God is the same way. We will see that God is a personal God next week and that he desires a relationship with us. And as the years progress, we want to have this ever-increasing, deepening knowledge of our God. And I want to just uh, have you look at a couple of scriptures. Would you keep your spot there in, in Isaiah? But I want to have you turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 15. This is an amazing um, recitation, as it were, of Moses, known as the Song of Moses. This is after the Egyptians had been cast into the sea and Moses is celebrating this victory and he writes a song. And he, you're familiar with this, he says, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. He's talking about what his God is like, highly exalted. Why? The horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. We praise God in this in this case for his judgment, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, and my father's God, and I will extol him. And he goes on speaking about how the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army he has hurled into the sea. And you can go on and on, verse after verse, and he's recounting the greatness of God in judgment. And then in verse 11, he asks this very interesting rhetorical question. After speaking about all the powers of God and how, how the, the men of Egypt sank like lead into the mighty waters, verse 11, he asks the question of God, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And he goes on about stretching out his right hand and how the earth swallowed them up. And then he goes on and he speaks about loving kindness and redemption and strength and guidance for his people. What a wonderful God. But he asked an important question that we ought to ask as well. He asked the question, who is like you, O God? Who is like you? And the answer, rhetorically speaking, is no one is like you. No one is like you. God, you are in a category all by yourself. We can compare things to things, but we can compare nothing to our God. These questions are repeated elsewhere. If you just want to jot these down, Deuteronomy 3 and verse 24, again, Moses asked the same question. What God is in heaven like this? And the context there is still recounting the history and the victory of God. And the answer rhetorically is no God is like this. God, our God, is in a class by, our, by his own. In fact, Yahweh is the exception to the God rule. There is none like Yahweh. Psalm 71.9 is another one. Oh God, who is like you, the psalmist writes. And in Micah 7 verse 18, it talks about the God who forgives and the God who gives grace. And yes, he gives judgment, but he also gives forgiveness. What God does that? And Micah rhetorically suggests there is no God like that. There is only one God, a God of holiness, yet of justice and grace and forgiveness as well. It was Charles Wesley who wrote, Glory, thine attributes confess, glorious all and numberless. There's a sense in which we can never exhaust this study, but it is an important study, and we need to understand where we're headed with this. I want to ask another question this morning that speaks to how we're to to understand this, 
how, how do we understand these attributes of God as, as, uh, as far as classifications? Let me just be brief on this. There are some attributes of God which speak to his moral character. We're going to look at those. And there are some attributes of God that just speak to his being. Uh, truthfulness and goodness, those speak to his moral character. But some speak to just the fact that he is eternal, never had a beginning, never had an end. That he is spiritual, doesn't have a body. And these are just, there's not anything right or wrong about those aspects. That's just who God is. Moral and non-moral attributes. But there's also communicable and incommunicable attributes. We speak, we've been hearing a lot about that which is communicable uh, today. Well, applied to theology, it's a very important word because the, the communicable attributes are attributes that we share with God as having been made in his image being made as people who are moral beings. And, and, and then there are the incommunicable attributes that no one can share with God, that he possesses all alone. Immutability, the inability to change, eternality. And yet we share with God the attributes of love and mercy and compassion, and we can exercise all of that. So you don't have to get too deep on that second question, but that's, that's important. We're going to be making references to that. Thirdly, I want to ask, with respect to where we're headed, which attributes of God, what, what names of his character, as it were, are we going to be studying? I'm just going to give you a rapid-fire list because there's several of these. This is known as theology proper. And these attributes uh, are, are glorious. And, uh, I mean, we could spend weeks on just one of each of these. We're not. We're probably going to spend one week at the most on these and, and uh, maybe take two or three in, in each setting. But I want to introduce you to the fact that we're going to be talking about the eternality and spirituality of God, that God had no beginning, no end, and that he exists in spirit form. He does not have a body. We're going to be spending time in Psalm 90, which uh, addresses that very thing. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. I was very tempted just to jump right into this lesson today because this is especially needed today when all oh, the whole world is falling apart as if God were falling apart. And people who have no reference to God will conclude that about the world. But we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. We're going to talk about the fact that, that there is not one maverick molecule, not one microbiological entity that is not under the wisdom and the understanding and the ultimate guidance to its proper end which, by the way, the proper end is that God's going to destroy all disease in his proper time. And it's all done under the sovereign hand and decree of God. We're going to talk about that. What does that mean? We're going to talk about the holiness of God. And we're going to spend time in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, seeing that he is separate from all else and that he exists in absolute perfection and moral purity. What a humbling, humbling lesson that will be. We're going to also talk about those three omnis. You know them, the omnipresence and the omniscience and the omnipotence of God, all from Psalm 139. All three of those are taught out of that psalm, the fact that God is everywhere at all times, that God knows all things, and that God is all-powerful. Comforting, yes, yet at times haunting, knowing that God sees and knows all things all things in secret, all things in public, all things in the boardroom, all things in the bedroom, 
And it is, a, it is a task for us to understand these attributes of God because it affects how we live, does it not? Just mentioning them can put us on high alert as to beholding our God. We're going to talk about the immutability of God from Malachi. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the fact that, that God has declared that he is the Lord and that he changes not. Men change every day, do they not? Men are sometimes the most unreliable creatures on earth, but God never changes. And we're going we're gonna to exult in that glory that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're going to also talk about the truthfulness of God. The truthfulness of God that he is absolutely reliable, that he is absolutely faithful. We're going to look at Romans 3, 4. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. The point is, is that God alone possesses absolute truthfulness. And yet we as God's people made in his image ought to reflect him, should we not? So that should affect how we live our lives in truthfulness. We're going to talk about the goodness of God as he has given us hearts and minds to perceive him. We're going to talk about the fact that he has given us ears to hear wonderful music as we did this morning. That he's given us eyes to behold beautiful scenery of his creation. And that he has given us taste buds to enjoy wondrous, wondrous foods on this earth which sustain us as we give worship to him. And all of this comes together for good reason. We're going to talk about the, the love of God. And that God's very nature is rooted in love and that he designs good things for his people. Grace and mercy we're going to talk about, those two twin sisters who hold hands throughout eternity. Grace, getting what you don't deserve from God. Mercy is not getting what you do justly deserve. God is a God of grace and he is a God of mercy. And he's also a God of faithfulness. He will not fail. He will not fail his people, and he will not fail himself. We're going to talk about the patience of God, how he is long-suffering with sinners, is he not? He is long-suffering with our frailties. He is long-suffering with our sinfulness. He is patient, and he waits, and he waits, and he forgives. And we will also talk about the justice of God and the wrath of God. Because though he is patient, he will not be patient forever with men. He, there will come a day when he will execute vengeance upon this world and he will give a just justice, a perfectly balanced justice to every creature ever born on this planet. And the wrath of God which will come, his righteous indignation upon those who reject all of this wonder of the God that we have been describing. And that's just to name a few. And there's not a bad one in the bunch. Any week you come, you'll be able to hear something magnificent, something glorious about our God. And my prayer is just that your hearts and minds and that your lives would just be enlarged out of this. That's really my only goal, is that as you look at a big God and as you put away your puny God and my puny God, because we do, we fashion God after our own image, right? It's been said that God made man in his image and then man returned the favor. And that ought not be, because he says that, God, that we shall have no other gods before him. So faulty understandings of who God is result in idolatry and bad, low worship. And so I just pray that you'll be encouraged by this. I pray you already are. I pray that you'll also be humbled by this. And I pray that God ultimately will be exalted. Well, I want to ask a fourth question this morning. 
I want to ask briefly, what a, how do all these attributes relate to each other here? This is just foundational material here. We're going to get into tearing apart actual verses of Scripture, but I have, to, I have to lay this foundation for us to understand this. How do the attributes of God relate to each other? Very quickly, we need to understand, first of all, that all of the attributes of God, the ones that I've listed and the ones that we'll, we'll get to, are true of the entire Godhead. Do, you, do we understand that, that we, we worship a Trinitarian God. And so what is true of the Father is true of the Son and is true of the Holy Spirit. So just make sure we understand that going into this. It applies to the, to the entire Godhead, whatever we say about one. So for instance, the Father is not more just than the Son, and the Son is not more loving than the, the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not more... Uh, holy than the Father or the Son, and they all uh, represent the Godhead as a unity. And all we're doing by studying this is turning the facets of the, the diamond of, of, of Godness is all we're doing. Is that we're, just, we're just gazing into the beauty of who he is. So it's the entire Godhead we're speaking of. Secondly, it's also to be understood that these are eternally permanent and perfect qualities of God. We have to view God in this way, that, that these are permanent qualities and that they are his perfection. God alone really is the only perfectionist. You may think you're a perfectionist, but God himself is the only being on earth that can truly be ascribed the, the idea of perfection. And these are permanently his attributes. This is very important. Why do I make this point? Because you've heard this before, right? You've heard, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and a God of judgment and a severe God, right? And the God of the New Testament, oh, whew, he's a God of love and a, a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Have you heard this before? Well, what we need to understand is I'm going to prove from Scripture that actually the God of the Old Testament is a God of love and a God of mercy and compassion, and the God of the New Testament is a God of wrath and judgment and justice. But he's also a God of love and mercy and forgiveness and compassion. And it's the same God. And he doesn't change. These are permanent qualities. And his revelation has just developed through us, uh, to us through history. But these things don't, don't change. And they're his perfections. And then thirdly, under this point here, I'd like you to understand that these attributes of God are inseparably connected one to another. This is what's known as the simplicity of God. You may say, whoa, how, is there anything simple about God? Well, this is. The simplicity of God is meaning simply this. God is not the sum of his parts. God is not like a pie graph or a pie chart where he's one slice holiness and one slice justice and one slice mercy. God is all holy. He is all mercy. He is all love, and in some miraculous but simple way, he's all of everything at all times. It's a very important concept to understand with our God. And any, any splitting up of our God, any, any fragmenting of him or slicing him into pieces is just a reflection of our own finite inability to properly understand him. We have to, we have to keep in mind that he cannot be divided. And no doubt, you're probably saying to yourself, Eli, we have stepped off into the deep end of the pool this morning. Wasn't quite ready for that. Uh, this is not the kiddie pool, okay? Uh, th this is not uh, Little League, if you will. Uh, God can be understood by a child, and yet 
the profound depths and mysteries can, can stun adults into old age. I mean, it's, that's a fascinating part about God, is that you, a little child can understand these things when properly explained, and an adult can just spend his life studying them and never scratch, but scratch the surface as to depth. And so this is the real deal. This is our God. And I call you and I today to behold our God. And this brings us to the fifth and final question I need to ask. Just, just laying the groundwork here, preparing for, for the weeks to come. Why is this important? Why, why should we bother? Why do we take time to explore the attributes of God? Why would we study them? Why would you get up early for the early service and come and learn about such things which admittedly are going to take a little bit of brain power to, to consider and to reflect upon? Why, why do we do this? Well, I'm going to give you several reasons why this is an important study to us. And if you just want to jot these down, these are just, these are just reasons that, that help us understand the um, immensity of the project and, and the importance of it in our lives. Number one. A true study of God stimulates heartfelt worship. Would you write down worship? This is, what, this is really what we're getting at here. It stimulates heartfelt worship. Beloved, are we not in desperate need for a breathtaking view of God? Is that not a need of your life and of mine? We need a breathtaking view of God, especially in the suffocating world that we live in. You, you're not going to get a breathtaking view of God by watching the news. You're, it's not going to happen. You're going to get a suffocating view of the world when you watch the news. And I'm not mad at the news, and it's helpful at times, and there's some good advice out there that we ought to be considering right now in this time but the fact is, they're not going to give you the breathtaking view of God, but the word of God will give that to you. You want high worship? You want meaningful worship? Very simple. Increase your knowledge of God. It's a simple equation then. And the, the reason this is true is because, get this, your theology drives your doxology. Do we know those two terms? Theology is just our understanding of God, Doxology is our praise of him. And so if, 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 the, if theology drives our doxology, and it does, a strong theology will result in a strong doxology. Solid theology results in solid worship, and there, there should be an equivalent there. You should not have rock-solid theology and weak, wimpy, earthbound worship. That doesn't make sense at all. And something has gone wrong if you have very high, high worship and you have a little puny God. How does that work? There, there's a correlation here that your theology drives your doxology. So it stimulates worship. A low view of God, as I've said, drives us into trivialities and earthbound perspectives, does it not? But a high view of God, a truly high view of God. Listen, loved ones, a high view of God, your worst day in your life, can result in praise and adoration and glory of God. The darkest day that you may even yet experience can result in unfathomable praise. Proof in point, case in point, the martyrs. Have you studied the martyrs? How is it that a martyr can be chained to a stake and set aflame and burned alive and while 
His flesh is falling off his body. How can that martyr be singing praises and glory to Jesus? How is it? Because he's got a rock-solid theology. That's how it is. And that is proven through history, by the way. You study those martyrs, and they sing at the stake. They sing well, well and, they, and they offer forgiveness for their, their enemies. This stimulates heartfelt worship. I need to move on. Secondly, not only a reason why we should study this is heartfelt worship, but it produces genuine humility. It produces genuine humility. And oh, how desperate we are for genuine humility today, are we not? The knowledge of God, true knowledge of God, is the great pride crusher. Prepare to have your pride crushed. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing because you, when you really come to grips with who God is, you don't want to stand in his presence with a proud heart. You want to be humble. You want to lower yourself. And again, the correlation is true. The bigger the God you have, the smaller you appear in his presence. Is that not true? And the smaller God you have, have you seen it? The bigger you appear in his presence. And none of us will boast before God. He has made this very clear. So we must recognize our smallness as a result of recognizing his business, uh, bigness. Egomaniacs are those who have never seen God. 1 John 1.5 says God is light. We're going to study that. That's an attribute of God. God is light. And here's what's important to understand about that. The closer you draw to the light, what happens? The more you see your imperfections the more you see your frailties. Oh, you look pretty good in the dark, right? But you come into the light, and you can't hide anymore. And all is seen for what it is. And then you throw omniscience into that, and not only does he see what's in front of him, but he sees what's in the darkness. That's, that's the amazing thing about omniscience. I can't wait to get to that. But the fact remains is God is light, and it, he's going to show us some things about ourselves. And there's no room for boasting, except Jeremiah 9.23. He does invite us to boast there. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. This is God speaking here. You want to boast about something, he will give you grounds to boast. Boast in the fact that you know me and that you understand me, God says. That's what you ought to boast in. And that's a wonderful thing, to know God properly. Thirdly, why are we studying this? Why are we spending weeks on this? Because it promotes stable maturity. It promotes stable maturity. We want to be mature as Christians. We want to grow. We want to become strong. We don't want to be weak and frail and flimsy believers. Well, the more we grow in the knowledge of God, the more we mature in his knowledge and, and the more we mature in our walk. The more I'm focused on God, the stronger I become. The more in his likeness I become. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that there are just levels and layers and steps upon steps that we grow and mature into. But listen, folks, that's a high view of God that results in that. A low view of God results in a slowing down of your spiritual growth, a stunting of your spiritual growth. A big God produces big growth, but a small God is small growth. And I want to be sensitive as I use this term. I mean the dictionary definition of it only here. But a puny God results in stunting your growth and retarding your growth. I don't mean to be offensive by that term. I, I'm speaking of it literally. That, that it slows you down. And it, 
it's a poor use of your valuable, valuable time to, to not have a big view of God before you. But the high view of God causes you to flourish like a tree planted firmly, Psalm 1, by streams of water. I want to give you a fourth reason here. We ought to study this. We ought to explore who God is because it establishes lasting ministry. It establishes lasting ministry. We long for effective ministry, do we not? We want our work to last. We want our efforts for the kingdom to make a difference. But without a great God, ladies and gentlemen, that will not happen. Without a great God, in fact, uh, you're going to need a great program. I'll just tell you that right up front. If you don't have a great God, you're going to need a great program. You're going to need a great gimmick. You're going to need great lights and sounds and fog machines and, you know, all the, all the modern stuff that we see in so many churches today. You're going to need it all. You know why? Because you have a puny, puny God. But if you have a big God, if you have a God who reigns in majesty and transcendence, that God speaks for himself. That God's ministry speaks for itself, and that God's ministry lasts. A big God speaks for himself, and a big God drives his own ministry. He doesn't need people to whip up programs and whip up situations that get people all excited about things that really are trivia. Worship, humility, maturity, ministry. I want to add a fifth here. Encouragement. Encouragement. A true knowledge of God produces personal encouragement. And we need encouragement. Especially at times like this, because we can be prone to becoming very discouraged, can we not? We can be prone to becoming fearful. This is human nature. This is not something that you ought to be scolded about. We all get discouraged. We all wonder what is happening. We all have our faith tested and tried, but a big view of God promotes personal encouragement. Charles Spurgeon said this, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which I lay my head at night. Think about that. He chose the sovereignty of God. Charles Spurgeon said, when I lay my head down at night, I rest in the one attribute. He just picked one of the sovereignty of God, and I, I lay my head down, and I, I sleep well at night. But, you know, you could pick the sovereignty of God. You could pick the goodness of God. You could pick the love of God. You could pick the faithfulness of God. You could pick the wisdom of God. You could pick the omnipresence of God, knowing that he is with you in all of the trials and all of the victory. You could pick all of the attributes of God and have a bed full of pillows to rest your nervous head upon each night. And so it increases personal encouragement. I'll give you the last one for this morning here. Produces worship, humility, maturity, ministry, encouragement. And I will add this, that it stimulates authentic conversion. It stimulates authentic conversion. True conversion. Do you want true conversion? Do you want your children to come to church and to understand really who God is, and to really become a Christian and to become a believer, I've got a simple answer for you. Preach God. Preach God. It's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding that we must have 
A serious study of God results in personal conversion. And there's a lot of talk about missions, as there ought to be. There's a lot of talk about evangelization, as there ought to be. There's a lot of talk about spreading the gospel, as there ought to be. But here's a news flash for you, beloved. God is the gospel. God is the gospel. You say, what do you mean? It's in the gospel that we see his love, right? In the sending of Christ. It is the gospel we see his mercy that he withholds upon sinners what is justly ours and he places it upon Christ in his justice so that he can be both just and the justifier. It is in the gospel that we see his patience and it is in the gospel that we see his wrath, do we not? Not wrath that we receive, but wrath that he, he sends upon his son to receive, and his son bears the absolute justice of God. God is the gospel when we see this, and this is why Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know God and him whom you have sent. Salvation, folks, is not from poverty. Salvation is not from crime. Salvation is not from loneliness. Salvation is not even from poor health. Salvation, really, is from God himself who is holding back justice upon every sinner who does not flee to Christ. And so the result in this is that we come to this God and we want to know him for true, authentic conversion and we come to grips with who God is in himself. Ignorance of God results in destruction, Hosea says. My people die for a lack of knowledge. But the knowledge of God results in salvation. And so in conclusion, as we wrap this up, I just give you a challenge. Simple challenge is this. Come with me. Come with me on a journey as we study this topic, a subject which we, we will never exhaust, but come with me on this journey where the topic is God himself. What a, what a glorious topic. What greater topic could we give ourselves to in the weeks to come? But beware, beware. As we explore these attributes, we will just be scratching the surface, will we not? We will just be the tip of the iceberg because Job 26, 14 says, Behold, these are but the fringes of his way. Just the fringes. We're just going to have time to touch the fringes of his ways. It kind of reminds me of Moses when he says, God, I have to see your glory. You have to show me your glory. And God says, no man can see my glory and live. But I will place you in the cleft of the rock. And as I pass by, you will see uh, my, after, my, my back parts, as it were. I always refer to that as my afterglow. You can't see the whole thing. You can't see the unhindered um, view of it all, but I'll just show you my afterglow. And Moses received a benefit that was beyond privilege, but still it was just the tip of the iceberg. I'll close with words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the deepness of the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth from, as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. 
And it is to that subject that I invite you this morning, end quote. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, age 20. 20 years old, and he's calling his flock to study the deepness of the Godhead's deepest sea. We are in good company this morning, and we will be in good company as the weeks progress. I'm so thankful that you're here today as we visit the epicenter of our spiritual life together. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song that I've asked uh, the, uh, the worship team to, to prepare for us. And uh, it's actually a song entitled, Behold Our God. And I think you're going to really benefit from it. Let's just pray as we close this morning's service and we walk as we, as we behold him. Heavenly Father, once again, I just thank you for the wondrous, wondrous opportunity to proclaim your goodness, your love, your truth, and who you are as our God. And Lord, this is good news. This is what we are called to in Isaiah 40, verse 9, to get ourselves up on a high mountain, not to run or flee, but to bear good news. And we are to lift our voice up mightily as the people of God and bear this good news and say to the cities of Judah, here, behold, look, this is our God. Lord, may we, may we live that prayer out daily and even as this song now encourages us, us to do, I would ask in your name that we be empowered to do this very thing, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.